well, I think that we, we need to start with recognizing that not all sepsis is the same. Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and expert clinicians in critical care. We ask them to share their insights about pressing and relevant critical care topics. And for today, we go to Pittsburgh to discuss sepsis endotypes. Okay, uh, before we get started, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Christopher Seymour, and I'm an assistant professor in um, critical care and emergency medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and for faculty in the CRISMA Center. Great. So in 2016, you received an NIH grant uh, to study sepsis endotypes. And most uh, clinicians are familiar with the term phenotype, uh, but endotype is something new. So I was wondering if you could explain uh, the difference between a phenotype and endotype, and then uh, what sepsis endotypes are. Sure. I think that's a great place to get started. Um, So I guess the rationale for even talking about sepsis, phenotypes or endotypes, and we'll get into the semantics, is that our treatment paradigm for sepsis currently is, thinks of these patients with sort of a one-size-fits-all mentality in that our health policies at both the national and state level ask us to treat sepsis as fast as we can with a particular set of antibiotics and with fluid strategies, um, oftentimes not considering that these patients actually might be quite different. There's been some really interesting work by folks uh, at the University of Michigan and a colleague of mine, uh, Derek Angus, who've tried to understand using in silico work or simulation studies, how inside our large randomized trials, there may be quite different uh, patients and there might be therefore heterogeneity of treatment effects of the tested interventions across these different groups. That was some work that was uh, recently published in the Blue Journal. And so this really sets the stage for thinking about how our sepsis patients that though they may on the surface look the same, it may actually be quite different underneath the surface, and whether that means anything for how we go about treating them. So to that point, we then start reflecting upon other fields in medicine, whether it's oncology or even our pulmonology colleagues and their uh, research into asthma and COPD, and that there are um, there is a lot of interest and therefore success in finding groups or sets or even called strata of patients that may cluster together in a similar way, and that may have implications for their treatment. So just to maybe think about some of the terms we use, um, you had mentioned the word phenotype. Um, And so phenotype can be thought of uh, in a couple different ways. First of all, a phenotype is often considered to be the set of characteristics, perhaps clinical characteristics, uh, that uh, identify a group. Now, that group and the phenotype itself could be thought of in different ways. So from the perspective of a clinical trialist, we may think of a phenotype as patients uh, with characteristics that can be identified prior to the point of perhaps randomization in a trial. On the other hand, more historically, a phenotype might sort of uh, encompass all of the characteristics about that group of patients across their entire trajectory of care. So, for example, the phenotype for severe genetic mutations might be considered intrauterine death, right? So, the entire trajectory of that patient's care. Now, you had mentioned the word endotype. This is where things get uh, controversial, and our field probably hasn't fully sorted out um, our approach to these words. Um, Endotype, 
has, as has been described, uh, would be a set of characteristics under the surface, and in its strictest sense, maybe sort of the, the set of patients that have a similar mechanism or, uh, or of disease that goes along with the clinical phenotype. Um, this may be identified through gene expression or different biomarker profiles, and typically it's thought in the classic sense uh, to have a causal relationship in that these um, expression profiles or biomarkers are in the causal pathway to the clinical characteristics we then observe. Now, causality is hard to prove, and that's not always the case. There's also the term uh, to think about called subphenotype, and this has been used now uh, in recent work in ARDS. This is tricky because the sub in the subphenotype also may be under the surface and can be thought of perhaps in a way of making multiple subsets within a group or perhaps different ways of grouping where uh, we may find ARDS patients in two different manners, uh, set either through their clinical features like extrapulmonary versus pulmonary, or we may um, use uh, a set of biomarkers uh, to classify them as has been done by Carolyn Calfee. Hopefully by now, given this long answer, you've realized that there's a lot of confusion around these terms, um, and our field continues to try and clarify when we say phenotype, that our audience understands what we're meaning, and when we say endotype, those uh, so biologic or characteristics under the surface that are causally related to the phenotype, um, we have some clarity. Yeah, no, that's a great start. So if you had to give some examples of sepsis endotypes, uh, what would spring to your mind? Right, so there's a few groups who've been working on this, um, and I guess we could highlight uh, work particularly by Hector Wong in pediatric sepsis endotypes. And so what uh, Professor Wong has worked on has been gene expression profiles that subset patients uh, that have prognostic implications. And so they've uh, looked at small cohorts, uh, both in children and now adults, as recently published in Critical Care Medicine, uh, where they've uh, taken uh, 100 or so endotyping genes, created what are called gene expression mosaics, or sort of illustrations of how patients cluster together using a color metric pattern, um, and then identify that these groups, in fact, have uh, different outcomes. Um, and so that's a good start. But these prognostic phenotypes may be different than our ultimate goal. And our ultimate goal, of course, is a... Uh, drug response, or what's called a predictive phenotype. This would be a set of characteristics that identify patients most likely to respond to our treatment or treatment of interest, something like uh, one could think of as a cytochrome P450 mutation um, in patients with DVT. This may not tell us anything about the natural history of, of their DVT or thrombotic events, but it might be exquisitely predictive of how well they'll respond to warfarin and therefore be predictive of their drug response. I think another good example of, of work uh, looking at substance types, of course, comes from the MARS Consortium, uh, which is an um, international collaboration in the UK and the Netherlands um, with uh, Tom Vanderpoel and Brennan Cicluna, who have looked at whole blood RNA expression profiles and used unsupervised clustering in a variety of cohorts in Europe um, and identified specific groups of septic patients that had different transcriptomic profiles and that these may have implications for outcome. I think all of this prognostic work is an, is an incredible start in trying to get us to the point where we can um, work these phenotypes into novel trial designs uh, to advance new therapeutics. 
Great. Um, and uh, the work that you're doing, uh, I think it falls under uh, the, the Seneca Working Group. Uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that and what you hope to achieve over the next uh, three to five years. Sure. So our group at the Charisma Center was funded to look uh, for sepsis phenotypes and endotypes um, in a large population of sepsis patients identified early in their care, particularly in the emergency department. You know, we've hypothesized that clinical characteristics that we can easily derive from the electronic health record could potentially phenotype patients, and then using their discarded blood, we could start to un- unpack the mechanisms that may uh, lead, may have led to those classifications, and then use these uh, class- characteristics to enroll patients in future randomized trials. And so this is really exciting in that it's a light-touch study of about 2,500 patients in which we're uh, deriving a, a really large set of, of, of clinical data, um, but then with very few coordinators and very uh, little outlay for administrative costs using um, dis- their discarded blood samples um, to unpack some of the biologic uh, characteristics. So this, this, again, is early in their care, uh, which we think is important because it, it may capture these patients prior to their treatment um, and prior to that uh, early treatment response. Sounds exciting. <laughs> to delve into the controversies or pitfalls of using sepsis endotypes, um, um, at, at the moment we're using the sepsis 3 definition uh, to diagnose sepsis. Um, how does uh, sepsis endotyping fit into that, and uh, um, what uh, challenges uh, are you facing or will investigators face? Sure. So there's a, a few challenges in trying to understand sepsis phenotypes, even aside from the syndromic criteria or definition. Um, and so I'll, I'll talk about those separately. The first one um, that I think uh, is the case when identifying new criteria or new identif- uh, sort of endotypes would be just the lack of a validation cohort. Um, one of the things that's, uh, that the Mars Consortium has done in a great way, as well as Professor Wong in, in the studies we've already talked about, is that they've They've derived their criteria for their endotype or their groupings in one set of data and then sought an external data set to validate those, trying to use um, new samples. Uh, and I think that's an important methodologic rigor uh, that, that may not always pres- have been present in, in prior work like this. You know, in addition, um, I think it's, it's important that, you know, we don't try and slice the salami too much. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that when identifying groups using some of these unsupervised methods using machine learning, we've, we sometimes can get back um, answers uh, from the computer that tell us patients can be grouped in multiple different ways. Um, and we run the risk of taking off our, our clinician hats um, and going down pathways that are perhaps overfit to the data without really thinking about how they could be used from a clinical sense. So, so let's say a consensus clustering algorithm tur- turns back eight groups, um, and they all may have different outcomes and, and subtly different uh, input variables that could uh, be identifiable in the record. We, we then might get really excited, uh, but then you'd also need to think, how could we implement eight groups of sepsis patients um, in our regular clinical care? Um, and that's where it could get really challenging. Uh, so th- I think as these consortiums build out, they've been really good at putting smart clinicians in the room with brilliant scientists so that the results of these machine learning methods can be put in good clinical context. I think that's one one uh, possible uh, risk uh, when embarking on, on this area of research. 
Now, you brought up the issue of sepsis 2 versus sepsis 3. I think a lot of um, uh, research, whether it's in endotyping or whether it's clinical trials or whether it's observational cohorts, are struggling with the best way uh, to use sepsis 3, and that's because it's, it's a total frame shift in how we think about sepsis. Um, criteria that involves the SOPA score uh, are not always easy to uh, extract from the electronic health record or to record uh, on a case report form, and that's, I think, a, a great challenge and an important opportunity for us to work on um, uh, trying to enroll patients that all seem similar at the outset, uh, but then can be grouped uh, further. Um, at the moment, I think most research groups are, are trying to be intellectually honest about this and being very clear about their enrollment criteria uh, and understanding that there may be uncertainty in the margins in who is sepsis 3 and who is not. Gotcha. Um, and then in terms of uh, the future, I mean, most clinicians uh, imagine that a patient will present with sepsis. There will be maybe a blood test or a sample that you take that's turned around quickly, and they get some information that they can use. How do you see that working in the next three to five years? Right. And so the, the time to result is going to be a great challenge for the practical implementation of these phenotyping or endotyping strategies, uh, that we don't have the um, sort of this window of time, 12, 24 hours, to take samples and to take our uh, PAX gene tubes back to the lab and identify uh, different patient profiles and then come back to the care and come back to the bedside in the way that perhaps our oncologists have sometimes hours to days or even weeks uh, to subset their patients for different treatment regimens. You know, we're we're recently being advised to give antibiotics to sepsis patients within one hour, um, or perhaps some, uh, you know, organ support within a few hours. Um, and those strategies may be differential for different subsets. And so, um, we would certainly be leaning on industry as well as other uh, sort of academic partnerships to try to find assays that are uh, reliable and valid, but also timely um, to sort of have a realistic impact on our clinical decisions. What kind of samples do you think uh, will be needed? Well, I think what's interesting is that our ability to phenotype our group patients may may actually be different based upon what organ uh, system or what compartment or what um, uh, body fluid type you're looking at. Uh, and so a patient's uh, analysis from their BAL might be quite different than their um, blood profile uh, versus what their microbiome is uh, when sampled from the nasopharynx. Uh, so that's all future work to be done. Um, I could imagine that uh, sort of blood profiling is the most immediate step uh, in which there's been the most progress in getting uh, sort of timely assays uh, to the bedside. Um, so uh, I, I foresee that being uh, where the field goes first um, and, uh, and build from there. I got you. And then uh, we would like to close it off uh, by asking um, our uh, investigators uh, to, to give maybe two or three polls that you would want to impart to fellows of junior faculty in critical care. I was wondering if you had any. Sure. Well, I think that we, we need to start with recognizing that not all sepsis is the same. You know, there's a, a broad distribution of comorbidity, age, pathogen, host response uh, inside uh, the groups of patients that we call septic, um, and that it's 
incredibly important that we study how our treatments may be best targeted uh, to these different groups of patients. Um, and whether it's gene expression profiles or clinical characteristics in the EHR, uh, these tools may help us find previously unrecognized patients in which to target our care. But we need to be rigorous about how we validate the groups and try to work out their mechanistic underpinning so that these phenotypes become drug responsive, not just prognostic. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, you've really got some exciting and intriguing work, and uh, we wish you every success uh, as you go forward. Thanks, Chris. Okay, thanks a lot. A big thank you to Dr. Christopher Seymour, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.